0: You've all heard of the show and tell, but during our recent tech symposium, we took the industry through a bit of a tell and show. Last week, we shared with you some tremendous innovations underway for the blueberry industry from our recent tech symposium there in Salem, Oregon. That first day of our symposium presentations were presented classroom style, but what does it take to really bring innovation from an idea to reality?
1: We open the doors all the time to industry collaborators who want to make their processes better whether it's color sorters, soft sorters uh, any of the tools in which we use to make a better berry without that cooperation especially speaking to the technology side of this we can't advance technology if they're not spending time in our facility seeing and dealing with the kind of challenges that we deal with every day and try to help those challenges better
0: in today's episode, we're gonna take you out to the field to see how growers and researchers are working together, applying technology to make themselves more profitable and our industry more sustainable.
2: This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the Business of Blueberries. Here's your host, President of the U.S. High Bush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist.
0: Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Last episode, we shared some highlights from USHBC and ABC's Tech Symposium, which was a really tremendous event. But those Tuesday sessions were just one part of the Tech Symposium experience. The next morning, we loaded up in buses for our tech tour where we were able to see some of this technology and innovation in action. For those of you that attended virtually, we didn't want you to feel left out. So we created some field videos that you were able to watch as part of the tech symposium experience. The topics in both the tour and the virtual tour range from genetics, to robotics, to pollination, to irrigation, to post-harvest. Today's episode is going to capture some of the highlights from the tech tour experience in Oregon. Similar to last week's episode though, this will be a condensed format, but if there is anything that catches your attention in today's episode, I encourage you to go back and check out the videos that are now posted at blueberryevents.org. We'll include a link for that, in our show notes. In today's episode, we've got some of the most forward thinking field experiments that are happening in the blueberry industry. Keeping with the theme of the tech tour, which is hearing directly from those trying new ideas in the field, you're going to hear from Steve Erickson and D- Josh Dietrich from Pan American Berry Growers, Bernadine Strick from Oregon State University, Jim Hoffman from Hopville Farms, and George Kaufman from AgriCare. First, you're going to hear from Josh Dietrich, who is a farm manager at Pan American Berry Growers. As you know, the Pacific Northwest experienced an unprecedented heat wave this year that certainly took its toll on agriculture in the region. We did a special podcast about it back on July 1st, if you want to go back and listen to that. Josh and the team at Pan American were very glad to have installed a cooling system, which he said saved their crop.
3: So thanks for joining us out here in the field. We wanted to take a couple of minutes just to kind of talk about our cooling system that in all honesty, this year saved our crop. Uh, Oregon, actually the entire Northwest had a historic heat event that devastated our blueberry crop and not just blueberries, but berries in general, other crops in our region. They were all very, very affected. And thankfully, fortunately at our farm here at Pan Am, we made an investment into a system uh, years ago that it really paid off this year. And the system I'm talking about is kind of a dual purpose system that we utilize not only for cooling during heat events like we had this year but we also use it for chemigation to apply pesticide products for our certain export countries that we go to the system that i'm talking about is comprised of a sprinkler which this is a netafim SuperNet gray is the specific model it comes with a stand adapter and an 84 inch tube lead so these sprinklers we have them spaced out in our field on a 12 and a half feet by 20 feet. So essentially every other row, 12 and a half feet between each sprinkler down the row. So total that gives us 174 sprinklers per acre. At that spacing, it requires 45 gallons per minute per acre, which is a high flow rate. It's very, very comparable to a dual line drip system. So one con of this system is it does take a lot of water. But on the other hand, if you don't have a system or you don't have a way to cool your fruit, especially on a year like this, there's been crops that have been up to, up to 100% loss in certain areas. So we're very fortunate that we, we decided to make this investment years ago. Um, it's certainly paid off for us and you know, we'll continue to utilize this in the future. So in the beginning when the cooling system was initially installed, it was installed mainly for the purpose of cooling. So back then we actually had a bigger sprinkler that was putting out more gallons per hour because the main goal of it was just to cool the fruit during a heat event. However, through collaboration with OSU and other researchers, we started questioning things like can this system be used for something other than cooling? Could it be used to apply pesticides? So they started doing some research and what they ended up settling on was this nozzle which is a supernet gray from netafim it puts out about 15.3 gallons per hour so it is truly a mist versus a droplet like you would see during your normal irrigation so one downfall of the system is you can't quite use it for irrigation purposes because you don't have the volume of water to actually irrigate with it however it is able to cool your fruit and you can also use it to chemigate. As our blocks mature and get larger in size, it becomes very difficult to drive a tractor down without damaging the fruit. So having a system like this allows us to apply the products that we need to keep our crops safe and healthy and, eliminate having to drive up and down every single row, which saves a lot on drop fruit. As we kind of move into, you know, a new era of the climate changing and temperatures rising and all those certain factors that are going into the challenges that we as growers face, having a system such as this that allows us to mitigate our risks due to heat is very important. You know, 2021 was a prime example of a year where this system literally saved our crop. And without it, we would have suffered severe, severe losses. One downfall or one negative of this cooling system that we have is it doesn't quite put out enough water to actually irrigate your crop with, which is why we have a dual system of both double line drip to actually do our irrigation. So what that means is you're going to have separate sub mains to feed each system that is above ground. It's a little bit of extra PVC, but in the long run, it definitely pays off. So one benefit to having a dual line drip is food safety. There's no contact of the water with the fruit. It's going to be better efficacy and efficiency. We're able to irrigate our crop using less water, and it's more effective in the sense that we're putting the water directly where it needs to go, which is on the roots. Um, In a climate like ours, where we're mostly dry during uh, our growing season, if we can keep the water off of that crop, and keep it on the ground where it's actually needed, it's going to help us produce a better quality berry for the consumer.
0: Thank you to Josh for sharing that system with us. As with everything you'll hear in today's episode, we'll provide a link in the show notes to a video where you can learn more and see these concepts in action. Before we dive deep into our next stop on the tech tour, I want to take a minute to recognize the next person you're going to hear from, Dr. Bernadine Strick. Dr. Strick, who was awarded the Duke Galetta Award for Excellence in Horticulture Research at our tech symposium and fall meetings, is a veteran professor of horticulture and a berry crop specialist at Oregon State University. During her more than 30-year career, her research has focused on whole plant physiology, improving fruit yield, quality machine harvest efficiency, pruning, optimization of production systems, plant nutrition and organic production systems. Congratulations once again to Bernadine Strick for being recognized with the Duke of Galetta Award. One of the projects that Bernadine shared with our tech tour participants was research on a mulch and fertilization in organic blueberries.
4: So myself, grad students and collaborators, we started this trial, it looks a lot different now, which I'll explain, but we started at comparing flat ground and raised beds, three different mulches, sawdust mulch, which was the industry standard at the time, compared to a weed mat. And I'll show you that weed mat, which is a woven black plastic polyethylene ground cover. And we compared that to what organic growers were interested in, which was a yard debris compost topped with sawdust. And they wanted that compost to provide a slow-release nitrogen source. Then we had fertilizer, which we compared fish solubles, which we fertigated, to feather meal, which is a granular product that we applied twice. The reason we went with fish was because that was the most common organic fertilizer used at the time.
0: Research like this has been instrumental in providing data to blueberry growers who have wanted to start participating in organic markets. So what did they find?
4: So after 10 years comparing those treatments, and the fertilizer was at a low rate or a high rate. So by the time plants were mature, because we increased the fertilizer rate as they age, which a grower would do typically. So when they were mature, we were comparing 65 pounds of nitrogen an acre to about 125 pounds of nitrogen an acre, low and a high rate. What'd we find out? Some really key things planting on raised beds, on average, increased yield 22%, cumulative yield from the first fruiting season in 2008 through 2016. Then we compared two cultivars, Duke and Liberty, in this trial, and what we found was that the best mulch depended on the cultivar. Duke didn't really care what mulch it was grown with, But Liberty had about an 11% greater cumulative yield with weed mat than with the other mulches. With fertilizer, huge difference. We actually had, on average, a higher yield with the low rate of nitrogen. And in particular, Duke was sensitive to the high rate of fish, having 35% greater yield when we fertilized with feather meal than with fish. That was huge. So in 2017, you can see this planting now has all weed mat. So we put new weed mat in the planting and any existing organic mulches of sawdust alone or compost topped with sawdust were covered with weed mat. So then we had those two treatments, organic mulches covered with weed mat and continuing weed mat over bare soil. What we learned from 2017 to 2020 was that continuing with weed mat over bare soil ended up further reducing soil organic matter. That treatment had our lowest yield. In fact, placing weed mat over top of the existing organic mulches increased yield as much as 50%. That's huge because these plants were already very high yielding. So why was that? We stopped fertilizing with fish containing potassium. We switched to a soy protein, liquid fertilizer. So no more potassium was applied from 2017 through 2020. And we applied no more compost. We saw soil potassium go down, leaf potassium go down still within suitable levels. And we saw an increase in yield.
0: Blueberry growers directly benefit from the research efforts of people like Bernadine. She does a fantastic job of explaining how this specific study has directly led to changes in our industry.
4: So what have we seen as a change in the industry? When we started, 2% of our about 4,000 acres was organic. Now 20% of our 15,000 acres in Oregon are organic and about 20% of the 20,000 acres in Washington are organic. Many of those growers have adopted our findings here, minimizing the use of fish, using weed mat, and now I hope they'll also adopt using an organic mulch under weed mat. The key that we found with weed mat is that there are some negative effects. Reduced soil organic matter, potentially increased irrigation needs compared to sawdust alone, higher soil temperature under weed mat, that black fabric, which we think is why organic matter goes down, and increased presence of voles, which can be a huge disadvantage for many reasons in plantings. Adding an organic layer like sawdust underneath has mitigated those problems, so that's huge. We've seen a lot of conventional growers switch to using weed mat because it reduces weed management costs even in conventional production, and in organic, we found 75% reduced costs using weed mat compared to organic mulches, even when we look at including installation and replacement costs. So big take-home messages from this very long-term certified organic research trial.
0: Thanks again to Bernadine Strick for a career of contributions to our industry and congratulations once again for being the recipient of the Ducaletta Award for Excellence in Horticulture Research. The harvest is underway in South America, so here once again is your Blueberry Crop Report.
2: It's time for your Blueberry Crop Report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Luis Vegas in Peru and Federico Baia in Argentina. This was recorded on October 20th,
5: 2021. My name is Federico, I'm Vice President for ABC, Argentina Brewery Committee. The information for week 41, which is, was last week, uh, Argentina shipped a total of £2.3 million. Out of that, uh, 62% went to the US market. That makes us in total at this point uh, in all the season, 8.7 million pounds. And out of that, 4.7 million went to the U.S., which is 55%. So this is the the crop report for week 41. Hello, this is Luis with the Peru crop report. Up until the end of week 41, Peru has shipped a total of 279 million pounds of fresh blueberries worldwide. From this overall volume, 55% has been shipped to the U.S. During week 41, a total of 24.5 million pounds were shipped. 54% of this volume was shipped to the U.S. with 13.1 million pounds, which are expected to arrive the U.S. market during the first and second week of November. Uh, Our latest forecast for season 2021-2022, well, we're expecting to grow uh, by 43% compared to the previous season. And uh, regarding the different markets, we're expecting to grow by 48% in our shipments to the U.S. Uh, Finally, from the overall volume shipped from Peru, this season, uh, we are expecting that 9% is going to be shipped organic. So this is our crop report from Peru. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks so much to our colleagues who take the time to participate in these reports. As a reminder, you can go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our data and insight center to see more data of what's happening in the blueberry industry. We've made a snapshot view of USDA data on production and price an online resource for everyone to access easily and quickly. Make sure you go to ushbc.org forward slash data to check that out. Our next highlight comes from the Tech Tour stop at Hopville Farms, where Jim Hoffman talked to us about a USDA-funded project he's involved with, along with Oregon State University and Monarch Tractor, who we featured on a podcast a few episodes ago. Jim is looking at energy savings that can be earned on the farm from an electric tractor and the cost savings that can be captured by the fact that it is operated autonomously. Here's Jim Hoffman of Hopville Farms.
6: It's a 115-acre blueberry farm. Uh, located just outside of Clatskanie, a stone's throw from the Columbia River. It's a great place to grow blueberries. We've got five main varieties of blueberries here, Draper, Liberty, Blue Crop, Rika, working on some Calypso. In the course of running this farm, in the course of traveling up I-5 to get here, it always makes you wonder why we don't have more electric vehicles on the farm. Over the horizon there is the Portland General Electric Utility, you know, one of the big power plants in Oregon. and. We would like to see more EVs on the farm. And we have done a lot of research into what the offerings are. And I think anyone who's, who's made that effort will find that there isn't much available. There are some ATVs, but there are not many electric tractors. And what is out there is expensive. So we went down the road with Monarch and we applied to the USDA for a conservation innovation grant to make it uh, possible for us to adopt their technology. And the Conservation Innovation Grant is really a trial to see how the incorporation of the monarch tractor will succeed on a blueberry farm.
0: For Jim, this project is about finding ways to make blueberry farming more profitable and more sustainable. He's also excited about the potential for automated data collection, which could open up possibilities we haven't even thought of yet.
6: Cornell just issued a study saying that the last 10 years of of agricultural productivity have been erased by climate change, so you know we've got to be part of the of the solution. But it's also got to be economically viable. So that's part of uh, the analysis through the innovation grant. The two main focuses for us on this grant are one, proving the energy savings, how much diesel will we save through using electric vehicles, and second, the productivity enhancements that we can get. Labor is a huge part of our cost structure, 40% of our operating expenses are labor. And there's a lot of operations we think that can be managed autonomously. The the big one is maintaining our fields. This grass strip between the rows of blueberries on a 115 acre farm equates to over 70 miles of grass strip that needs to be maintained. And that should occur autonomously. If we did that, the fuel savings of 1,500 gallons of diesel a year, the labor savings, hundreds of hours of labor will prove out the return on investment. The second longer-term benefit from the autonomous tractor is the potential for that data collection platform. We think there's a lot of sensors out there already. It's an evolving field. Obviously there's sensors used in drones, but as the tractor is going through our fields every day, cutting grass, It can be collecting data. It can be collecting data on on plant health by looking at the color of a leaf. It can be looking at pest loads, uh, whether it can detect SWD or whether it can detect aphids. We need to know where in the farm and what kind of load. Uh, That'll help us decide how we run the farm. Maybe we can do more targeted sprays. We think it'll save money. We think it'll enhance our agronomy. We're gonna do that not by going into the data collection business, but by working with OSU and their engineering program, the computer science program to create this platform and let students come up with the sensor, the apps, the purpose of the um, analysis to try and create unique opportunities to improve agronomy. So whether it's trying to track a pest or track the berry load and the color of the fruit, we'll evaluate the different ideas, try and come up with uh, productivity enhancing agronomy practices that we can use the data from this farm to improve our operations. We'll be keeping everybody up to speed on what we're doing and the success we're having or not having. We'll be upfront about it. The OSU economics team is gonna do a cost-benefit analysis which will be akin to the enterprise budget. That'll come out at the end of our adoption and analysis which it's gonna be a two-year process. So we'll keep you informed and thank you for listening.
0: Next, we head over to Hall's Ferry Farm where AgriCare agronomist George Kaufman introduced us to a pollinator habitat project that they've implemented.
7: Hi, I'm George Kaufman, I'm an agronomist for AgriCare. Today we're at Hulse Ferry Farm here in Independence, Oregon. Uh, This farm was planted back in 2014 with blueberries and hazelnuts. At the time of the planting, uh, the owners made a decision to set aside a set amount of ground for pollinator and beneficial insect habitat made up of uh, hedgerows that run through the middle of the farm, as well as areas around the edge of the farm that, where the soil is unproductive or too steep to farm. Plants are planted in, in clumps of you know, seven to ten, or in some cases more, of the uh, same or similar plants basically allowing a contiguous food source throughout the season to uh, feed beneficial insects, uh, native pollinators, and also providing nesting sites in the plants as well as in the ground. The insects provide a variety of services for the farm. They provide pollination during the blueberry blooming season as well as predation on agricultural pests. We selected a wide variety of plants, plants that did not Fruit is one of the most important aspects, and that's so we're not providing an alternate host site for spotted wing Drosophila, which is one of our biggest insect pests here on the farm in the blueberries. The plants are also selected for drought tolerance because we don't want to have to spend large amounts of precious water watering them and, and keeping them alive. We're also looking at plants that have a long lifespan so they don't have to be replaced contiguously plants that you know don't require large amounts of pruning or or maintenance we want it to be a very cost-effective and long-term planting that doesn't require a lot of you know ongoing attention from the farms so we found we've narrowed it down to about uh, nine or ten species of plants that we found work well. Various willows, spirea with Douglas spirea being the best, mock orange, uh, Pacific nine bark, Douglas aster, sticky gumweed, goldenrod, ocean spray, all plants native to the area.
0: What a great story. And if you listen closely, you can even hear the insects in the background as George is speaking, but I'm sure many of you listeners are wondering what are the tangible benefits of a project like this for the farmer?
7: The benefits can be seen, you know, within a year or two, because that very first year, there's plenty of flowers available, plenty of nectar and pollen from those wildflower habitats that we put in. That allows us to start building those populations immediately. This farm has been planted for seven, eight years, and we continue to see population numbers of beneficial insects and pollinators to continue to rise. And so we really haven't Reach the the peak uh, carrying capacity, you know, even eight years into it, and so we expect those numbers to continue to rise in, in the, at least the short term, and then hopefully plateau and stabilize as the farm and the habitats reach maturity. We've contracted with a third party scouting service to um, help monitor and and just really measure the benefits of these habitats that we've planted, and we found really really great results from these habitats. So we've seen a tenfold increase in pollinators over the past six years. We've seen continuous uh, increase in populations of beneficial insects across the spectrum. We've also found, as we get closer to the hedgerows that we plant in the fields, there is fewer insect pests. We're seeing better fruit set. We're seeing better uh, cluster counts. Um, you know, a higher percentage of flowers are being pollinated. We have not yet eliminated or reduced the number of honey hives that we're using. But in the future, we, we hope to, as we get more information coming in, you know, hope that's an option or just be less reliant on them in case there are years where honeybees are. are less available. In terms of years where there's bad weather, lots of rain, lots of cold weather, honeybee pollination is is definitely not as effective. Uh, They're not as active. We see more activity with the native and the wild pollinators. And so at the very least, it provides an an extra insurance policy uh, for pollination that even if we are bringing honeybees in, we'll still get good pollination. And certainly on years, there's poor pollination from the honeybees. We can expect to see good pollination or adequate pollination because of the native bees that we're allowing to grow and flourish on our farms. And so the hope is someday to be less reliant on on honeybees. And we're definitely pulling lots of data and looking at that and, and tracking that and seeing if that's a possibility. And that's the direction that we're working at this time.
0: Very cool to see an innovation solution like that work with nature, which can have some real benefits to the blueberry crop. Thank you to George for sharing this with us. We have one more stop on the tech tour to highlight in today's episode that you won't want to miss. But first, it's time for our marketing boost. We'll be back to this in a moment. But for now, here is USHBC NABC Vice President of Marketing and Communications, Jennifer Sparks.
8: Thanks, Casey. I have one thing to say. Grab a boost of blue. Yes, for now I'm accentuating the boo because it's almost Halloween. And who doesn't love the fun and festivity of the spooky occasion? Kids and adults alike are getting in on the action and lots of brands are too. I've seen some super fun social media posts already from charcuterie and snackboard channels, foodie influencers, and big brands like Tito's Vodka. The great thing for the blue industry is that Halloween isn't just about the colors of pumpkin orange and blood red. The deep blues and purples play in quite well this time of year. And here at USHBC, we're capitalizing on these next several days with fun innovations for all ages, including recipes for the spooky blueberry bowl, blueberry witch's potion, and blueberry mini mummy muffins. It's all there for you. Photography, videos, recipes, ready to share on social media and keep Keep your followers loyal as you show your Halloween spirit and give them fun, yummy ideas on how to grab a boost of blue. Just go to ushbc.org toolkits and click on fall and winter holidays. You'll find the Halloween content and much more to tie blueberries into holiday gatherings through the rest of the year. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the account at blueberries to find more blueberry inspiration and post ideas. This has been your marketing boost. Thank you for your partnership, as together we inspire the world to grab a boost of blue. Casey, back to you.
0: Thank you, Jenny. Now back to our final tech tour highlight of today's episode. I thought it would be appropriate to end with some of the comments from Pan American Berry Growers President and CEO Steve Erickson, as he really captured the importance and value of collaboration to keep bringing these new innovations to the table.
1: When we were meeting in the field we spoke to the need to collaborate and work with partner companies and vendors and academia to continue to work towards a better blueberry and in our facility we open the doors all the time to industry collaborators who want to make their processes better, whether it's color sorters, soft sorters, uh, any of the tools in which we use to make a better berry. Without that cooperation, especially speaking to the technology side of this, we can't advance technology if they're not spending time in our facility seeing and dealing with the kind of challenges that we deal with every day and try to help those challenges better. The tools have really allowed us to do some things that historically people couldn't do. But at the same time, we still believe in the people component because we can add that critical eye of a person right before that product gets dropped into a flat or gets dropped into a clamshell.
0: Steve emphasized that collaboration is important for bringing technology to the farm, but it's also important for bringing blueberries to the public.
1: Back in 1981, I went to my first North American Blueberry Council meeting back in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And what I was so impressed with being only one or two years out of college was that we already then had an industry that was meeting to share and talk about the common goals of the industry and the challenges ahead for the industry and how they were gonna face those challenges. And to think 40 years later where we are today, NABC forming the USHBC and Dawn Promotions and Dawn Advertising and Dawn Health Research, things that we could share with consumers to get the consumption of blueberries up If it weren't for the cooperation of those groups working together, growers coming together for a common cause to promote the causes of the industry, we would not be where we are today. And I truly believe that we're a model for other industries on anticipating what the challenges of the industry are and how we can still be there 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now even. Obviously we want blueberry growers to flourish and survive in this industry. And all of us that have been here as long as we have, it's really all about providing safe, flavorful food to the consumers so The underlying goal of us sharing information, us collaborating, us speaking about technology, us looking to companies to bring technology to our industry is to ultimately continue to bring the best possible product to the consumers worldwide because there's no better way to get blueberry consumption up than for them to have the best experience possible.
0: Now, I couldn't have said it any better than Steve. Thanks so much to everyone who participated in this exceptional tour. This tech tour was a unique opportunity for us to show innovation and technology happening in the field today. It was so much fun to be there in person. And I also know that all of our virtual attendees were getting to be a part of it as well through the videos on the online conference website, which once again will be linked in the show notes of this episode. That's it for episode 70. There really is so much to be excited about for the future of Blueberries. If you weren't able to join us in Salem for Innovate 2021, I hope these tech symposium highlights from last week and this week were helpful for you to get a sense of what you might have missed at our recent symposium. For those of you who attended, I hope it was a fun look back on some of the best parts of our week together. I also hope that today's episode inspired you all on the exciting possibilities yet ahead. For our blueberry industry. I would love to hear from any of you who were inspired by this year's tech symposium to take action there at your company. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the business of
1: blueberries.